it's a, it's a privilege to share my reflections with the congregation for the first time uh, since being part of the church. Uh, and if Carl's shock when he saw me this morning was any indication, apparently it's the first time I've worn a collar shirt over my seven months as well. So, there. So we're continuing our series titled God Among the Nations. And this morning, uh, not because I like a challenge, but I chose to look at the book of Job. Flipping through one of the commentaries in preparation for this morning, I read that the author is unknown, the date of writing is uncertain, the locale or the location of us is obscure, the historicity is doubted, and the literary integrity of the book is questioned, which I took to mean that I am free to put my own meaning and my own truth to the book of Job. That's how it works, right? So, kidding aside, what I hope to do this morning is a flyover of the whole book. Uh, although Leighton read a handful of verses in preparation, um, my guiding question as I was preparing was, what can we glean from this, this book in its entirety? So, this book, it probes deep questions, if you've read through it before. Uh, deep questions of human experience, experience that most, if not all of us, maybe most of us who are older, have experienced. It probes questions of how and why. And more specifically, why do people suffer? And how does a good and loving God permit bad things to happen to good people? So tackling this in 25 minutes or so will be a challenge but we'll see how it goes. During my final two semesters of my master's degree, uh, which I recently finished, I was deeply, deeply affected by these questions uh, and what has become known as the problem of evil and suffering in, in philosophy of religion circles. Simply put, if God is all loving and all powerful, God must both want to and be able to remove evil from the world. Yet evil exists, that much is obvious, so either God is unable to do anything about evil, meaning God is not all-powerful, or God is unwilling to do anything about evil, meaning God is not all-loving. So I didn't need to share any of my own. We each have our own experiences and stories that call to mind the deep emotions around suffering and hurt of, of loved ones that we've lost to illness or to tragedy. And in these stories, we ask these questions of why do people suffer and how could our God let this happen? How could God permit these sorts of things to take place? And when it's people that we know, it carries newer and deeper and more profound weight. So this book of Job, it probes these questions. Returning to the book, we can see how the book, how the author, authors, uh, tried to reconcile the problems in their own, or the, the solutions in their own context. So although the date of the book of or the writing of the book is disputed, there are those in the world of biblical scholarship who hold that this book is actually very, very, very old, uh, many concluding that it's uh, likely an ancient Israelite legend, likely adopted from other ancient Near Eastern civilizations that was passed from generation to generation to generation before it was finally written down during the time the Israelites were in the Babylonian exile, when, as you can imagine, the Israelites were asking themselves the question, how could God let this happen? How could God let God's people be destroyed and killed and taken into captivity? We're God's people after all. So as a story then, not necessarily as history, but as a story, 
The book of Job suggests to us that the guiding questions this morning aren't new. They've been asked by people for millennia. How and why does God let these things happen? So we're introduced to Job in chapter 1. He's, we're told he's a man of great wealth, of great rapport, of great faith, and of great righteousness. A few verses later, we read, which I think some of the most, or are some of the most problematic verses in our Bible, which is Job 1, verses 11 to 12. It says, The Satan says to God, Stretch out your hand and touch all that Job has, and Job will curse you to your face. And in verse 12, God acquiesces, saying to the Satan, All that Job has is in your hand. Only against Job do not stretch out your hand. So subsequently, all that Job has, all his possessions, all his, his staff, his hired hands, all his livestock, and all his children, all 14 of them, are killed or stolen. So sit with that for a moment. In an earlier verse in chapter 1, God almost baits the Satan, saying, Have you considered my servant Job? So when we consider evil and suffering and how to respond to it as Christians, this isn't really a good look for God. It almost raises more issues than answers. And it doesn't stop there. The Satan returns to God after taking all, all Job's possessions and, and his children. And, he says, and the Satan says to God that just taking those things wasn't enough. You have to afflict Job specifically. And the image that we're left of Job following the end of chapter 2 is Job sitting in a pile of ash, scraping himself, his blistering sores with a broken cup, his wife telling him to curse God and die, like a supportive wife, and Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, sitting with Job in silence for seven days and seven nights. It's a, obviously a very gloomy uh, picture. So we could say that this was a test from God, that God knew that Job would remain righteous throughout this test, but it's not a test I would want to undergo. I don't think it's a test any of us would want to undergo. And calling it a test, I still don't think paints God in any better light in these chapters. And so given all that happens in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Job is given his first words at the beginning of chapter 3. He responds to everything with a wish, a wish that connects with our human experience around suffering. We petition. He says, why didn't I die as soon as I was born? Job, he lost his 14 children traumatically. If he wasn't born, they wouldn't have been born. He wouldn't have felt the suffering. It's that petitioning. It's that just trying to defer the pain, trying to get away from it that is so human. In response to this anguish, his friends, the Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, it fills out the rest of the book with dialogue. The dialogue between Job and the three. And it follows a pattern. Uh, so it starts with Job saying something, and then a friend responds, and then Job responding, and then another friend responding, just back and forth for a number of chapters. Every time Job speaks, he defends himself. He defends his actions. He defends his thoughts. He defends his words. He maintains his innocence, and he maintains his righteousness. Whereas his friends push and push, saying to Job, there must be something you've done. Something anything which you just don't remember, but that the Lord deems fit to punish. Eliphaz, kind of summarizing that thought in his first speech in 4.7, he says, now think of this. Which innocent person 
ever died an untimely death. Find me a decent person who has been destroyed. Eliphaz here is saying that only evil people are punished. If you undergo suffering, you're a bad person. Only evil people suffer this divine cosmic justice, which, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, is maybe sort of kind of how we wish things were. There's an old writer, Dante, if you're familiar with classics, he wrote the Divine Comedy. He constructs this entire view of hell based on this divine comeuppance. He envisions the seven circles where each circle holds different levels of sinners uh, who sin to different degrees and they receive punishments that are worthy of the sins that they committed. If only it were that neat. If only we were able to categorize and designate the eternal destinations of those who have done us wrong. Or if only we could personify cancer and relegate it to one of those circles or or personify addictive substances or whatever or any other source of suffering and see to it that it was punished accordingly. If only reality were this black and white. But Eliphaz is wrong. We know he's wrong. We can intuit that he's wrong. We can think of dozens of innocent people who have died untimely deaths, who have suffered for years with illness, or those who have been handed just a terrible hand in life, or those who suffer in silence at the hands of institutions or partners or or governments or addictive substances who were and are good and innocent people. I'm still relatively new to church work, but I know enough to say that suggesting to anyone who's in the midst of hurt and trial and suffering, uh, suggesting to them, like Eliphaz suggested to Job, that maybe you deserve this, is probably the pastoral care at its worst. So what do we do with this book? What do we do with a book of the Bible that seemingly creates more trouble than it resolves? Well, I'd respond to that question by saying that we have to recognize the book of Job for what it is. It's a story seeking answers, not necessarily a history that we have to justify. So Job in our Bibles, it's the bridge between the historical books, the books that walk us through the history of Israel up until their exile, and the the wisdom books. So Job, it connects the book of Nehemiah to Psalms. So it connects history telling to the wisdom literature. It connects human experience in history to human emotion. If we fall too much to one side and hold Job as a purely historical text, and we read the dialogues, including the dialogues between the Satan and God as historical, well, we have a pretty problematic moment in time when God seemingly schemed against one of his children to prove a point. So whether or not Job passed this test and remained faithful and righteous, it's a pretty awful test. So to that end, you know, we could argue, we could look ahead uh, and say that the story of Job, it aligns well with, you know, perseverance and running the race, some of these New Testament themes, concepts around sinfulness or, or uh, works-based salvation, uh, earning God's favor through righteousness, all these things. But that would be reading this older book through a newer lens, reading early church theology back into ancient Israelite theology. I'm, I'm curious what we can draw just from the ancient Israelite conception of God alone. That's why I want our focus to remain on the book of Job. So at its core, the story of Job, it reflects a worldview in which the righteous, those who are good, are blessed by God, and, that, and, the, and where, uh, wherein the evildoers are punished. So each of Job's friends say this. We've heard from Eliphaz already 
Bildad in 8.20, he says, Surely God does not reject a blameless man, nor strengthen the hands of evildoers. Zophar in 20.23, he says, When he that is an evil person has filled his belly, God will vent his burning anger against him and rain down his blows upon that person. So in these dialogues, we get this common refrain over and over again. Good people are blessed and evil people are punished. Returning to our guiding questions of how and why, I would suggest that for many there is still this desire for a more simple or for this simple system. It's neat and it's tidy, but we know it's just not true. The book reiterates over and over again that Job was righteous. By all estimations, then, within the book's own worldview, Job was undeserving of any punishment. At least if Job was being punished for something that he did, he would have been able to offer penance, make amends, and find reprieve. But this is a test. Remember, have you considered my servant Job? God asks. This question and test to me really paints God in this negative light, as I've said already. And it leaves us with this uncomfortable question of the nature of God that's being portrayed here. There is a simple solution, I think, um, but it raises more complex questions, but we'll defer those for a different day. So the simple solution for the test part of, of this book is this. Some of those same scholars that I've alluded to, they hold that the beginning and the end of the book of Job uh, are additions to the dialogues. Again, that's simple. It defers the questions for a later day. But for our purposes here, they're additions. So if we remove the beginning and the end of the book of Job from our view for a moment, instead of the story where the Satan is baited to test Job, we have a story purely asking why bad things happen to good people. It changes it a little bit. And it concludes with no obvious answer. It'd be like reading Harry Potter and not knowing why Voldemort was trying to kill Harry or Lord of the Rings and, you know, Frodo just has this ring which attracts evil to him and he doesn't know how he got it, what to do with it, or anything. He just has it. Stories like that, they don't sell. They don't make sense with, you know, they don't make sense with our desires, with what we want, with, with our desire for resolution. So I recognize that this, con that this conclusion, it might, it wouldn't really do anything for someone here or someone who's listening online who's in the middle of a difficult situation right now. But based purely on the book of Job, not accounting for the intro or the outro, the source and the cause and the reason for suffering they're all unknown. Suffering, and by extension, the book, it speaks more to the randomness and chaos of the world and the agency of humans than the workings of God in our world. So the ancient Israelites, they adopted and adapted and they wrote the dialogues in this book, seeing great mystery in the way that God operates. Yet, come the time that the Israelites were in exile, their understanding of how God worked changed. And that was God would, you know, bless those who do good and punish those who do bad. The Israelites, as we're familiar with, they believe, they, they thought that they were in exile because God, they did not give God the proper recognition that God deserves. So for that reason, the scribes in Babylon at the time, they amended the book to make the book make sense with their experience. If Job was good, he could not be punished. So for that reason, either he did something or, as we saw, it was a test. And Job passed. It, was proving, it proved Job's righteousness. And the epilogue also reflects this mentality 
where we read uh, in 42.12 that the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. So at its core, the book of Job is the dialogues. And the dialogues end with Job's declaration in 42.3, which says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And the book of Job as a book of wisdom I think that has to be our takeaway. But is that a conclusion that we can live with? Reading Job on its own merit, within its own worldview, can each of us go home satisfied with such a conclusion that to the problem of evil and suffering, we are speaking of things beyond that which we can know? For myself, the answer was no. I wanted to dig deeper. So that led me to, I guess, my second point, which was that we need to find a, conclu- or a theology and an understanding of how God works in the world that works for us, that answers our tough questions, that can provide us solace in a seemingly chaotic and random world. So when we engage in those conversations that Spencer alluded to, sitting at the edge of a dock, around campfires, with friends, over dinner, wherever we may be, when we talk about what God may be like, about how God can and can't work in the world, we're doing theology and we're flexing our theological muscles and thereby growing and sharpening as Christian believers and as Christian spiritualists. The book of Job as the source of wisdom, as an avenue toward living wisely, it offers an invitation for us all to continually and actively do theology. It invites us to actively consider and wonder and ponder and be amazed by who God is and all that God could be. And as humanity advances, we must allow our understanding of who God is to grow along with our collective knowledge as a human species. So when I began my seminary studies, I excitedly enrolled in all the theology courses. I devoured each of the required readings as though the keys to understanding God would be buried within their pages. I took a a two-semester course this past year, and it had a textbook, a a big theology textbook, with the chapters neatly organized, 1 to 37, that summarize the core fundamentals of Christian doctrine, things like the character of God and the formula for being saved, um, and all those big theological words that students like to throw around, like expiation or propitiation and sanctification. As I, as I was going through it, I asked myself repeatedly, is it really this easy? Can, can our human knowledge really, truly contain God in a textbook? I think the obvious answer is no, but recently that answer was compounded for me. See, I'm an uneducated space enthusiast. I love all things space while at the same time not understanding anything about it. The numbers are too big and the math is too complicated and that's why my resume has me mostly in people work, not numbers work. But in news recently, as I'm sure many of us know, Uh, NASA launched a new telescope at the end of 2021, and recently it returned photos to us, and photos, um, or, and there's one that I want to bring to your attention, it will go up on the screen in a moment, if it will go up, there we go, perfect, so this photo was one of the first of five that were returned from this telescope, so if you're unfamiliar with it, those are not stars, it might be hard to see, from where you are, but those are not stars. These are all galaxies. And within each of these galaxies, just like the Milky Way, we know that they contain billions of stars. And this photo, it's not a panoramic, 
uh, of the sky. It's not a composite that, you know, the, the telescope pieced together. Rather, one commentator said it's like holding up a grain of sand to the sky and snapping a photo of it. I was going to try to bring a piece of sand or a grain of sand back from Simon House, but I, was, I would have lost it. But could you imagine what a composite panoramic, panorama would look like? It would contain millions upon millions of galaxies, containing billions and billions of stars, being circled by trillions and trillions of planets and other cosmic entities. And, and the verses that Leighton read for us, uh, it alludes to, this, to, the, to the heavens in, in chapter 38. And I just want to reiterate some of those verses. It asks, can you bind the beautiful Pleiades, which is a constellation? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out Leo with, her, with its cubs? So as a people gathered here, I'm certain most, if not all of us, would agree with the statement that God created the universe. Although we may disagree on the model and the mechanism by which God created, fundamentally, I'm sure we all believe that it somehow came from God. So we believe in and sing to this God we understand to have created all of this. This vastness literally beyond comprehension. Yet simultaneously, we try to contain this God in the theologies we construct, the textbooks that we write, and the simple solutions that we try to offer to complex experiences of others. So I started this morning introducing the questions of how and why bad things happen to good people. I started there because that's where the story of Job starts. And by all admissions, I think I can only end in the same way that the story of Job, uh, or in the same way that the story of Job originally ends, by recognizing that I'm speaking of things of which I have little understanding. Does that mean that we can't know anything about God? That all our knowledge about God that we do have is suspect and that we should just throw our hands in the air and give up trying to know anything? Of course not. See, we can venture outside of the book of Job for other answers to more, and, and to more hopeful conclusions. But the purpose of looking at just Job specifically this morning was twofold. First, it's that suffering is real. It's that suffering is complex. It's not a test. It's not punishment. It, and suffering, evil, borders on the unknowable. And with the wisdom of the book of Job as our guide, we can look to God in our suffering as Job did, but maybe we can't look for answers because maybe those answers don't exist. And second, the book of Job, I would hope, would challenge us in the way each of us hold our theology and, and what we believe about God. When I say, for example, God is Father, are we putting a box around who God has to be? Or are we putting on a lens which expands our view of who God could be? When we say that God is love, are we putting a box around God that limits God? Or are we putting on a lens that expands our view of who God can be? And you can fill in that question with any other attribute that you may think of for God. When we say God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, any of them. Are they putting boxes around God? Or are they expanding our view of God? I think if James Webb, the telescope... And the story of Job can teach us anything. It's that God isn't a specimen to be examined under a microscope. Rather, he's a being to be magnified through a telescope. And as a book of wisdom, as a sign pointing us toward how to live wisely, I wonder if the book of Job actually can satisfy us. 
I wonder how much room each of us has in our faith for this mystery and grandeur of God. And that's only a question that you can answer. So to supplement what I've said this morning, I want to encourage each of us to go home, pull out your Bible, and read Job 38 to 41. That's God's response to Job. Didn't have time to get through it this morning. And then throw on a Planet Earth documentary with your lunch, or read about the four other photos that came back from this telescope, and allow your minds to wander into the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty and the mystery of God, and allow the conclusion of Job to be an eye-opening conclusion of your own, that surely there are things too wonderful for us to know. Let's pray. God, we sometimes try to contain you in, in books and sermons and in words that we write. And as we look to Job for wisdom, for direction, first may we recognize that there is chaos, there is randomness, and, and sometimes there are no answers to why bad things happen to good people. But in those situations, Lord, we just pray for solace, we pray for comfort, and if we know people who are suffering, would you just guide us to them that we may offer the ministry of presence as Job's friends did for him before they opened their mouths. And secondly, Lord, as we look to Job, may we be drawn to the majesty and the grandeur and the mystery of who you are. As we consider all that you could be, looking at the vastness of the universe, May we be drawn to have our faith challenged and our faith expanded and our worldviews expanded. And may that expansiveness just bleed out into our everyday, uh, in, our, in our conversations, in our theologizing with friends and family, or our meditations in the morning or in the evening. And may such meditations make us stronger and better believers. And may that be reflected in our day-to-day -day living. Pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Fort Gary MB Church. We hope that what you heard challenged you to think in new ways about Jesus Christ and the life that we are called to through his death and resurrection. If you have any questions about who we are as a church, our mission, or have any other questions in general, Please do not hesitate to contact our office email at info at fgmb.ca. Be blessed.